Hi, I'm Alicia. Hi, I'm Sarah. We're two English teachers reclaiming literacy through pop culture. Welcome to Lit. So Alicia, today we are going to talk about the Academy Award nominated movie, Women Talking. Um, and we are talking about it. I actually introduced this one to you and said that this is one that we should watch. I think I sent it to you as a YouTube video because I saw the preview forever ago, but then it just kind of fell off of our radar. Um, and then I was listening to Glennon Doyle's uh, podcast, We Can Do Hard Things, and they were, she was talking to the filmmaker uh, who directed and wrote the screenplay for uh, Women Talking. And it was such an incredible conversation. I just couldn't help but say, we need to see the film. And I think we're really going to need to talk about it, especially as we look at a lot of the other pieces that we've looked at this year um, in seeing a feminist lens through a lot of the pieces that we've talked about. And just to really kind of, as we wrap up and get closer to wrapping up our season, use this as one of our, our last pieces. So anyway, uh, that is why I said that we should watch it. And then what were your thoughts? <laughs> oh, golly, Sarah. I, you initially sent me the preview and I, it, my initial thought was, dang it, she's going to do this for the podcast. This is, looks really intense. I don't know if I can handle it. <laughs> but then you brought it up again. I said, okay, I think I can do it. But um, I will tell you, I finished the movie and I basically looked at my partner and said, please don't touch me. Like, I just need to like sit a little bubble where I feel like <laughs> is my own and I have choices in my life because oh the world is a gross place I mean this is I think my, my first thought when I finished the film was this is a real life example of the handmaid's tale in a lot of terrifying ways if I can make that reference but I also think so much this film is a great capstone on all the different angles we've looked at female identity through it, all the different ways that we've kind of poked at what it means to be and how we define and engage with and identify as women and exist in our world. This is another yes. really important perspective for that conversation. And I think you're right. Glennon Doyle's conversation spoke so much about just autonomy in the, the female body. And when that is already something that's constantly politicized and that we are constantly warring over in lots of different spaces. This video, this movie, brings up a really, really important conversation to add to that greater dialogue. Yeah, absolutely. So we are going, we always try to have a lens as we're looking at a film um, or a television show. And so we are going to use the rhetorical lens to speak about the different types of rhetorical speech that are being used throughout the film. Um, let's give us an introduction for why rhetoric. Yeah. So you're actually the first person who ever introduced rhetoric to me. And I think that was, you were just starting out as an AP Lang teacher. Let's be honest. Rhetoric is kind of fading in and out of popularity in different 
sections of education. But it's definitely here to stay as we look at the, the analysis of argument. This goes all the way back to Greek philosophers. The term rhetoric actually comes from the Greek verb arrow, which is to say. So this was initially developed as a way to analyze speeches and conversations. The goal was if we use the skills of rhetoric, we can all really understand the thing underneath the thing, what we're saying underneath or how we're saying things and why we're saying things and who we're saying them to. So that was the goal of rhetoric, but it's so interesting. We now use rhetoric to analyze writing. We need to acknowledge rhetoric is very present in all of our online spaces. You and I talk constantly. The reason we need to arm students with the skills of rhetorical analysis is because they need to understand that in our internet age, they are the product. And therefore, they need to understand how people are speaking to them as the product in all different channels. Absolutely. And I think it, we're going to do this as elementary level as we possibly can just to kind of break down each of the pieces. So it, the first thing that you typically have your students look at when you're talking about rhetoric is going to be the credibility of the speaker or in the Greek, the ethos, right? Um, but you're looking at, is the speaker credible? Is it someone that I can listen to? And why can I, and why should I be able to listen to and trust what they are telling me? So here we are, uh, in a film that is based on a true story, but this is a fictional film. This is kind of like a, what if this were to go the way it should go type of film. Uh, that's what the story is. It is takes place in a small religious colony in 2010 um, it is a Mennonite colony. So as two people who live in Indiana, we have a lot, we, we, we've rubbed elbows a lot with both the Amish and the Mennonite communities, but, um, this is not in the United States. This is a Mennonite colony that has settled somewhere else. The women were sedated with cow tranquilizers and raped from the ages of four and up. So everything from four-year-old girls to old grandmother aged women, um, became victims of this group of men that for several years were tranquilizing women um, so that they couldn't move, they couldn't, they didn't understand. It, it, it helped, it gave them a fog about what had happened to them so they couldn't even verbalize what had happened to them. They just were waking up with bruises on themselves, knowing that something had happened to them, but not able to say what had happened to them. Um, they are pacifists. They don't believe in war. They don't believe in really fighting. Like there's, there's nothing about their religious upbringing that tells them that it's okay to fight back. That if something wrong happens to you, you forgive and then you move on. Um, and they're not educated. The women are not educated. And when they vote, they have to, <laughs> they have to put their mark. They, they have a drawing. And they have to draw, are they going to stay and fight? Are they going to stay and do nothing? Or are they going to leave? And there's pictures and they have to pick which one they're going to do. That's the initial vote. Yeah, Sarah, I think as we think about the credibility of the speakers, then you're right. This, this whole structure of the movie is playing with a what-if scenario. We, we find out that essentially one of the men was caught in the act and therefore, he actually confessed and accused a whole the whole group that he was a part of. And now the women behind the backs of the men have decided they need to do something about this. So 
without education, without language, without an ability to write things down or anything, they come up with a pictorial option for voting. They allow every woman in the colony to vote. They call their community the colony. And then they have the, the conversation, the whole main action of the movie really is there are three families that are the head families of this colony. The women of those three families have been asked to sit down and have a conversation that is then going to determine the future of all of the women in this colony. The Which is only a huge man, responsibility. Oh my gosh, right? And the only man who is in the room is the school teacher who actually his family previously was ostracized from this community because his mother had previously questioned the power structure of this group. He's since gone to college and come back to be the school teacher, hoping he could enact some change. And so these women feel that they can trust him. And they've asked him to sit in the room as a scribe of their conversation. Well, the interesting thing is the fact that his family was exiled causes him to lose his credibility with the men in the colony. Mm. But in this particular situation, it causes him to gain credibility with these women because his mother was exiled because she said that they needed to be working together more as a collective. And she was demanding changes that the men in the community didn't want to give up. And because of that, he, through his parents' actions, gained credibility with these women. They trust right. him. They trust what he will. They trust that he'll keep a secret, and they trust that he will write down what they say honestly. So, so baseline. If we're looking at the credibility of these speakers in making this decision, well, they all themselves are victims. Several of them are either mothers of victims, or they like all of the women in the room who are talking themselves are victims. One of them who's in the room in the movie is pregnant from the act of rape several of them oh my gosh i just i one of them is the mother of one of the four-year-olds who was a victim one of them i i think about the, the generations here there are several grandmothers and their mothers and then there are teenagers in this room so we see lots of layers and let's even think about the main speaker in the film, the narrator of the film is Ocha, the teenager who's in the room. She is speaking to the unborn child of the pregnant woman in the room. That is who she's narrating the whole movie to, which adds a whole other layer of she's speaking to the world that we want to make for you, this unborn child, which adds a whole other fascinating layer of, I mean, she's speaking from credibility herself as a victim. She's speaking from credibility herself as a child of an abusive marriage. And then she's speaking herself from the credibility, having grown up in this culture. I love one of my favorite moments with Ocha in the film, as we think about ethos, is at one point her grandmother is apologizing to her mother that she has required she forgive her abusive husband throughout their marriage. She said, I've, I've always told you to just turn the other cheek and forgive. And Ocha looks at her grandmother and she says, is there a time when we should not forgive? And her grandmother says, sometimes forgiveness can be confused with permission. Yeah, that was a powerful just, line. You, you are, you're looking at the outline with me, Sarah. Most of our outline is actually quotes. <laughs> <from this movie laughs> because they're just, it is, I, I felt like there, there, 
were so many moments in this film I wanted to just sit and rest in. I almost felt like I needed to pause. I showed you. I finally grabbed a notebook and just started hardcore taking notes because I wanted to really look at the argument these women were presenting to each other, how they came to their conclusion. But ultimately, they, yes, they are credible to each other in this moment. They are credible to us as the audience of the movie because they all, themselves are all survivors who are living in this community. It's not the census person who drives through their community and asks to count them. It's not anyone else in that regard. It is just these people who have lived through this and now are choosing their own futures as well as their children's futures and the future of their religious community. And it's a big question as to what they're going to do. And it really gets to the emotional appeals that they have to make in the room, which is where we get to pathos. But when they, as part of this, they've set up their credibility of who they are, but then in order to make a decision for all the women in the colony, they have to appeal to each other's emotions. And over and over and over again, there are so many emotions. There's the, the fears of what will happen to their daughters if they stay. There's the anger and the fact that they are angry about what has happened to them. They are fearful about what will, what will happen to them if they stay or if they go because there's that really big question um, and at the very beginning, we have a character who's just like, if we don't forgive them, then we're, we're damned to hell. Like there's a question of salvation in this too. It's not just a question about emotional and mental healing. It's a question about their spiritual health as well. Um, their spiritual health with themselves, but also their spiritual connection to each other. Um, because this is a very faithful community. And this is a community that is deeply dependent on their faith. The number of times that these women break out in him to kind of relate to each other and to deal with the situation as they're trying to figure out what they're going to do is so powerful. Because it says that they're not letting go of their faith. God didn't fail them. The men in the colony failed them. So how are they going to deal with that? And you bring up, I mean, that, that's that line between ethos and pathos, right? There's my belief system and how that impacts everything I'm saying. And then there's the emotion I feel in response to that belief system. They are credible to each other because they're all speaking from the same belief system. More than once when one of them speaks out in anger and, and seeks revenge they come back to this idea of what is forgiveness. They quote Philippians 4, 8 to each other, which is this idea of like, think about what is good. And that is why ultimately Ona, the, this girl in the room, the woman in the room who is sitting there pregnant by the hands of her rapist. And she says, freedom is good. It is better than slavery. Forgiveness is good. It's better than revenge. And hope for the unknown is good. It is better than hatred of the familiar. Ugh. And then even, I mean, if, if we're talking about like the, the, the pathos and the emotion that we are supposed to feel, we hear then that these women have been told for years that these rapes have been happening. But it, no, it wasn't men in the colony. It was either ghosts or demons a punishment for their sin 
or clearly the women were just adulterous. And this movie, like, it keeps flashing to scenes of these women waking up after the abuse. One of the women, she has to now wear dentures because her teeth were knocked out. One of the women smokes cigarettes because she has panic attacks as she flashes back to those moments. Yep. One of the women, and this is, there's a lot to unpack here. I'm not saying that queer individuals become queer because of trauma and abuse, but one of the individuals who was raped and loses her baby, this is the impetus that then gives her permission to finally express her trans identity. And they handle that so graciously. They actually say at one point, we learned that she, she was always a boy. They say something along those lines. And it's just, it, it's this beautiful kind of passing observation as we then learn there, there's one girl, she's silent. She won't speak to adults since her abuse has happened. Yeah. Ugh. Yeah. And as you're going through, and, and you're right, there's always an overlap. And I try, it's so hard to explain that. I have sophomores now, so it's so hard to explain yeah. to my non-pre-AP sophomores when I'm trying to talk about uh rhetoric and I'm like yeah well it's often more than one thing right because we use emotional appeals to appeal to our credibility and in addition to that we use information and logic and text to support our feelings and to Mm -hmm. appeal to those emotions and that's where you get that last layer is you know you're right they were told a lie which is that's that's logos, right? They were told a lie for years. They believed the lie because they were told that lie for years. And this is the data that they have to work with. They have the, the data they have to work with is the lie that they were told for years. The fact that two of the girls caught one of the boys in the middle of the act and he turned everyone else over, right? So he turned everyone else in and, and they can't know if he if it was kind of a witch trial thing where he was just naming names at that point, or if he was named and they have that conversation too. How do we know that everybody was named that was named was guilty of this? We have, and they have no way to prove it because they didn't, the crime has been happening. Those crimes have been happening mm-hmm. for years. So there's no rape kits to check. There's no photographic evidence. There's no way to prove who's been hurting whom. All they know is that they've been hurt. The victims know the victims know who they are. They know that they were victimized. Right. Let's also talk about the timeline. The, the whole reason they're having this conversation when they are is, yes, they, they question the credibility of the accusation. Was this man just trying to get out of the fact that he was caught and he doesn't want it just to be on his shoulders? But all of the men who were accused, they've actually been sent to the town beyond the secular town beyond this colony for their safety and then the men of the colony have already collected the money and they plan to pay their bail as soon as they feel okay women get it out of your system calm down in these 48 hours the women have enacted a voting system that has never existed before in their community and then they are choosing to parse through an argument that determines the future of their entire community. And, oh, I, yeah, so it, the, the two big things that really are held up in their argument is what is the definition of forgiveness? And then also, 
who is to blame for a corrupt system of power? At one point, Marike, who is, her husband is abusive. She actually says it's not only the boys who have been excellent students. They are not just afraid for the future of their daughters. They're afraid also for the futures of their sons and how they've been enabled in this system. And then they're afraid for themselves because they know they have to unlearn an entire broken ideology that they are not allowed to think that they are not allowed to love and they're not allowed to be safe. What's remarkable to me is that this is that this conversation is happening in 48 hours and it's a conversation that you feel like should have been happening for years and is just Ugh. suddenly happening. You can, it, you get the sense that this is not, this might be something that a few of them have been thinking over time, but they had, no one had ever verbalized it. And this mm-hmm. is the first time they're verbalizing that, the women and girls should have a chance to be able to read because it would give them some autonomy. It would give them the ability to have, take some of that power back to be able to defend themselves in a court of law, to be able to defend themselves um, and to have a future beyond whatever the future is that has been laid out for them by the colony. Um, I think there's that fascinating conversation about, forced versus chosen forgiveness. If you're being forced to forgive, is it really forgiveness? And I think that's a question that all of us can ask. I think that's a question that we all have to ask. Many times, many of us have had to ask that question. Am I forgiving these people who hurt me because I want to forgive them? Or am I forgiving them because I feel like if I don't forgive them, then something else is going to happen. Something worse is going to happen if I, if I don't offer this forgiveness to them. And that's what's happening to these women is that they have to decide if they stay, that forced forgiveness, is it really forgiveness? And if it's not really forgiveness, what does that mean to their souls? Because I think we, we know that too about forgiveness, right? Like in part of the healing process is the ability to forgive but decision to give that forgiveness has to be made by the per- has to you have to be ready for it. You can't just give it willy nilly. Like you have to be ready to give that forgiveness. Well, because what we need to also acknowledge forgiveness. It, it's first and foremost a selfish act. It, it's I don't want to carry this burden of hate anymore. And they're they're all acknowledging that the hate would not go away. That the broken system of power would continue to be in place. We just now know. And would never be able to talk anymore about what is happening. And I love, again, Marike's mother. She speaks to, if we leave, this distance might finally give us a choice. It might finally give us the perspective to love properly. And and, and you're right. This is still coming back to, like, some of that is logos. Okay, if we leave, time makes people feel less begrudging. But then there's a pathos and there's still an ethos. She is speaking from her her years of lived experience. She is speaking from her own feelings of how she is holding all of that. And, oh my gosh. And, and, and to your point, I mean, I, I hear ultimately more than once the women say that their their goals, their hopes are that if we leave, women would be allowed to think they would be allowed to create a religion that is focused on love and their children would be safe. 
But on top of that, like the ways that that would happen, women would be allowed to think because girls would be allowed to read and write. I, I, I love this image. They actually say the schoolhouse must display a map of the world so that we can begin to understand our place in it. So much of what we're hearing is that the logos is we need language for our future. Yeah. I think about consent. The baseline of consent is actually having the words, the vocabulary for your own body and for others' bodies. So you can then know clearly what yes and no sound like. And what you're saying yes or no to. Yeah. Because if you go all the way down to these four, five, six-year-old girls, they don't know what oh. they yes. Even if, even if someone had said, "Do you say yes or no?" They wouldn't have had any clue what they were no saying. Yes or no idea. Oh. And so, there, it, that is part of it as well, right? It, it's knowing what you're getting yourself into in a given situation. And, and I think, too, one of the other logos, I, I I love one of the older women. She repeatedly, she wants to speak about her horses. She says, you know, I, I don't want anything metaphor, else. I, wanna, I know. I, I want to <laughs> give you a metaphor about my horses. And ultimately, so she begins by saying, my horses, when they see a dog in the road, they bolt when they're scared. And so then the, the women have this conversation about bolting versus leaving. But then ultimately they come to this idea that the animals in this colony are safer than the women. That, that, that's logos. That's a fact. That, they're just, that, that, that's an, a reality. I, I, oh my gosh. There's just so much about this story and the way they process their argument. And you're right. The way that they constantly then ground themselves back, they will then sit together and sing a hymn. And it's the way that they hold hands while they sing the hymn or they sing the hymn to someone, or they invite someone to their circle as they sing that hymn. They hold so graciously and beautifully the emotion of their experience as they make, try to make a logical, fact-based decision for their entire future of their, their world. I, and I think it's really it's important to note that they are doing this for the entire community, that they, that everyone, the women have put their trust in this small group of women that are sitting in a hayloft talking this through until all hours, just trying to figure out what do we do because they know they can't, it can't be one or it can't, they can't split. Right. Because if some stay and some go, the people who stay will be in more danger. So there's either strength in numbers if they stay and fight, because that's their choice. The two choices they decided on was staying and fighting or leaving. So if they stay and fight, they need strength in numbers. And if they go, they need strength in numbers. And so they understand that the numbers matter, that they have to pay attention to that as well. And there is no other way. That, that is, those are the two ways that they have to determine. Well, and how beautifully at the beginning of their conversation, they have been told the reason they have stayed for so long is they've been told if they leave their colony, leaving the colony damps them to hell. Mm-hmm. And how quickly, I mean, it's within the first 10 to 15 minutes of their conversation. They say, surely that can't be true. Oh, I love it. She's like, <laughs> one of those like, 
Um, so after thousands of years, Jesus comes back and he can't possibly find a group of women that decided to wander <laughs> off. Like, seriously, we're going to actually yeah. say that the Lord and Savior can't find a group of women that just left? Yeah. I think he can find us. Like, it just, it, it brings up so much. And, and there's a lot of faith in that, right? That they have to be able to say, be faithful and say, well, look, we, like I said, God didn't fail them the men in the colony failed them. And these women make it abundantly clear that they do not feel like they've been deserted by God. They feel like they, they don't feel like they've been forsaken. They feel like the men have taken and twisted a theology that does not benefit the women in the colony, any of them. And, and there's so much about our current world that we could unpack about that. But I, I think the, the big thing I want to say in response to that is I went to this movie saying, oh, no, I don't know if I can handle a big religious conversation. But this movie is so much about so much more than religion. Religion is part of their argument and it, it is the foundation of their culture. It is their credibility to each other when they can't when they have no other words, they go back to the language of their faith. But that's not the only thing this movie is about. And I think that's also what makes it so beautiful. That's what makes it so powerful. I still get why everything everywhere won and sweep, swept the Oscars. But but this got best screenplay, didn't it? I think I got best original screenplay. <laughs> and now we're going to look it up to see if it got best original screenplay. But I believe that she did win for best original screenplay for this one. Which... I mean, it's adapted. Best from the adapted novel. screenplay. Yeah, yeah. Best adapted screenplay winner. Yeah. Yes. And then um, it was a nominee for best picture. Yes, we get why everything everywhere won, but I am very happy that this won for adapted screenplay because I think that it just so beautifully captured. I started the novel. I haven't finished it, but it it just captures so much in less than two hours. It is less than a two hour film, but it is so powerful. It reminds me in a lot of ways. I think about there's an artistry to a minimalist story like this. My best example of that is the screenplay Wit, um, which was originally a, a theatrical play and then was adapted for the screen by Emma Thompson. That whole play has three actors in it, but it tells a, a, a full, a full, rich story. And this story, I mean, I think you and I, we've talked about maybe five characters officially, but there were, what, 20 women in this loft together through the whole mm -hmm. film? And we see many more, but there are about 20 named characters in the film. And for that to be all that you need and for it to only be 48 hours that this whole story is capturing, and I was on the edge of my seat the whole time, yeah, that, that, is, that is art. That is beautifully done. It's something I want to honor and acknowledge in a lot of good ways. All right, Alicia. So if we're going to take a turn, what are you, uh, outside of Academy Award-nominated films, what are you reading and watching lately? Well, you know, when, when Sarah doesn't tell me to watch the big heavy things, I, I yeah. turn to what is recommended for me on, on the apps. And uh, I am a huge fan. I loved Jane the Virgin. I watched it both 
preterm and postpartum. It was really fun to watch it again postpartum. But the main actress in that, she's in a new show called Not Dead Yet. I will tell you, I, I watched Not Dead Yet, and it's very reminiscent of Ghosts. I think I might actually like Ghosts better, but this this one's cute. The premise is the girl, she moves back home after several shameful lived experiences. She gets assigned as the head obituary writer, and after a near-death experience, she then actually meets all the people that she writes obituaries about until she finishes writing the obituary. And then as soon as she clicks send on the obituary, they go away. So she, she writes these very authentic obituaries about them, but they also come and teach her life lessons along the way. I mean, it's cute. It's fluff. You don't go to it to be like, Oh yes. I want to learn something about women talking to each other. You you watch it. You're like, Oh cute. Okay. Another episode. That's done. Check. Um, so that's what I'm watching. And then, um, I did just finish Jodi Pico's, latest book she did co-author it I'm going to be a terrible person and not remember the co-author off the top of my head but um their story of how Jennifer Boylan the way this story came to life they actually say it in the author's note at the end basically Jennifer Boylan had a dream that she co-authored a book with Jodi Pico and she tweeted about it and Jodi Pico dm'd her and said tell me more and suddenly they were writing a novel together and it is, as Jodi Pico exists in the world, she is going to have a, a story that somehow addresses a legal issue in our world from both a kind of a social and, and a legal perspective. So really interestingly, I was telling you, Sarah, none of this description of the book actually says what it's about, but it is the story of a trans girl. And... Um, Jodi Pico's co-author is a, a trans woman herself, so it, it adds some authenticity to the story in a, in a really beautiful... It, it was a beautifully written story. I, I For Jodi Pico, as she exists, I enjoyed it. It was a good, quick read. Speaking so. of ethos. Yeah. Establishing credibility, right? Yeah. Well, and you and I have talked... I, I adore Jodi Pico's story. The fact that she graduated with a journalism degree and said, oh no, I don't have an interesting life story. What do I do? So she basically developed her own model of, well, but I love to write. So now she deep dive researches every novel before she begins writing it. So Mad Honey, the, one of the protagonists, because often you know, she has multiple perspectives, mm-hmm. one of the protagonists is a beekeeper. So she clearly like deep dive researched beekeeping for her character and then her co-author also uh wrote from the perspective of the trans teen and so wrote from lived experience and it's just the i listened to the audiobook the um the two voice actors that they got were just lovely it's just again it was just enjoyable that's good and that yeah, might go on the list but yeah <laughs> what about I, you sarah um I am the recommendation of a college friend who gives me lots of recommendations. I listened to the memoir Crying in H Mart by Michelle Zahner. Hey, now, I first recommended that book to you. Don't you give your college no, friend credit. No, I think she actually sent me the message first. You might have sent <laughs> Anyway. But anyway. Um, but uh, it, it, actually, I finished it a couple weeks ago because I've been reading and, and doing a lot of other stuff, too. But it, it's just a really lovely memoir. So I just, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed the discussion of just grief and trying to figure out who you are 
and identity and discussion of her Korean culture. It kind of it got some All the Boys I Loved Before vibes only because, you know, in, in that series, it's fictional, obviously, but in that series, you're getting a lot of that mixed culture that's going on with, with the main protagonist and their coming, her mother being Korean and also her mother being dead. And although this is a real story, so it was a lovely, lovely story. I really enjoyed it. Um, and then my husband and I have been watching Shrinking on Apple TV and it has Jason Siegel and it has Harrison Ford. It has Jessica Williams of Daily Show fame. Um, it's gotten some fair criticism because it is a therapist who's working out his own issues by probably using methods that a therapist should not use with his own patients um, and and not using your patients to work out your own issues. But it has it's been funny. It's been thought provoking. Um, and we've really enjoyed it. it. The cast is fantastic. Harrison Ford plays a, an old therapist who's a curmudgeon and he has Parkinson's. And so he just is a national treasure and watching him in this role, embracing his age. I love to watch these actors that I've grown up watching, right? And watching him embrace his age here and the realities of what that actually means and, and seeing him mentoring Jason Siegel, who I thoroughly enjoyed watching, not just in film, but also watching How I Met Your Mother. Um, and then Jessica Williams, who it took me a while to place her. I was like, I know, I've seen her as an actress before. And she, I loved her on The Daily Show. So just seeing her embrace a, a dramedy role where she's being funny, but at the same time also being really heartwarming and, and trying to work out her own stuff as well. And also helps highlight that, yeah, our therapists probably also need therapists because mm. they are dealing with a lot of their own stuff too, which is probably why they went into therapy in the first place. Um, and so I've, we've been enjoying it. Then it's almost over. The season is almost over and we'll see what happens on a, on a second season. I feel like I need to get Apple TV just because of Schmigadoon, Sarah, but that's a conversation for <laughs> We haven't day. finished it, but that might be something oh. we need to talk about for another season. <laughs> Gonna start singing about Brigadoon and I, I, I oh, just Kristen Chenoweth. I know, I know. You just said a lot of other beautiful things. I just had to say, Apple TV, the the star out in the east is, but there's Ted Lasso and Schmigadoon, and maybe I want to watch them. So, <laughs> Shrinking is also maybe on my Apple TV list. So, with all of that in mind, you guys, Sarah and I could talk for days. This is why we have our podcast. Don't forget to check us out on Facebook and Instagram at Lit Think Podcast and subscribe to our Substack newsletter. This is Sarah and Alicia signing off. Keep on lit thinking, people.